and the person working the Holy Spirit. And of course, there, there are a lot of directions we could go. Uh, but let me, I think as I describe the work of the Holy Spirit, that, that it will draw any, many things into it. I've written out a little uh, definition here. The person and work of the Holy Spirit is that which breaks down the barriers between us, between us and within ourselves, so as to produce the koinonia of fellowship. Now that may sound a little weak, but if you first of all, you got to get a, a grip on what koinonia is. We use the word a lot, and I, I'm afraid we've lost the the power of the word. And the idea is that uh, you know if if you want to, in the most graphic sense, think male-female brought together, or two others, you know, two, two things or two people. Uh, part of the issue here is if we recognize the problem of sin is a pervasive alienation. And by pervasive, I mean it's something within us, it's something between us, it's something between us and God, it's something between us and creation. And so if we understand the work of the Holy Spirit as binding us together, binding together what is formerly alienated, uh, then when we, I'm, I'm going to talk about this, the work of the Spirit as mission. But by mission, uh, the idea is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who goes forth so as to draw together that which is separate. And remember, the word separation has a profound meaning, too, in that what is separate from God, what is separate from other people, that is ultimately definitive of death. And so if you ask, what is, or if I ask and you answer, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? The one word answer is life. life, right? And what is meant by life is the overcoming of alienation and separation and being united then, and that being united with God and other people uh, is definitive of life. So if we Think of the work of the Holy Spirit as constituting life within us, life around us, uh, by joining together that which has been separated. Um, and we could approach this in one of two ways. Uh, we could begin with a large-scale separation, uh, thinking in terms of religions, cultures, peoples, nations, or we could think of a small-scale separation, the inward alienation or separation that we feel within ourselves. But in a sense, in our practical experience, those two things are not really different. Uh, that is, the barriers of culture and religion, which separate you know, peoples, or the barrier of our own personality, which separates peoples maybe one with our little tiny prejudices and the other with corporate prejudices, it's the same alienating tendencies that are broken down then by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we begin to think of acts and you know the places where the Holy Spirit is depicted, 
that there is the passage across cultural, religious, linguistic barriers, but also at the same time, of course, think of Peter in chapter 10 of Acts, there is the breaking down of personal, cultural, ethnic, religious prejudices at the same time. The big move that we could frame the work of the Holy Spirit in, the sign of the Spirit, is the work you know, in the day of Pentecost with the giving of the tongues, the gift of languages, as contrasted with Babel. And so that move, I think, gives us an image of what's taking place with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is Babel? In my reading of Babel, uh, prior to Babel, there is no idolatrous religion. There is no really uh, organized religion per se. Uh, there is no ethnic ethnicity. There is no tribalism. Uh, there, uh, there, there is, you know, that it's the place where cultural, religious, linguistic, racial, and tribal divisions or separations are instituted. And so with, and, you know, even in, I don't know if you've done anything with recent genetics, that even the idea of our genetic makeup is recognized as not being the essence of what constitutes us. So what precedes genetics, I think, is indicating that the sort of divisions taking place at Babel uh, is, is actually preceding then what we would think of as races or tribes. Um, I probably told you about the genetic experiment in New York City where they took swabs of people, just a random assortment of people of different races, and then traced the genetic makeup, and of course, though, and then clumped the people who were related genetically into groups. And what you have is not, you know, black people, white people, but you have people of different races are actually related more closely genetically. All of that, all that just to say that skin color turns out not to really tell us very much about uh, the genetics of someone. It may tell us something. Um, I don't know, if any, have, any, have any of you studied Noam Chomsky? You know who Chomsky is? that he talks about that there is a deep grammar that is the place that all language in some way plugs into this deep grammar. And maybe if we think of Babel in that same sense, that here is the deep grammar, that in fact it's not just a metaphor, uh, but is the ex explanation of what is overcome between Babel and Pentecost. Um, what we tend to do is to reify things like culture, religion, ethnicity, race. But that, in the picture of, from Babel to Pentecost, is not really uh, the primary thing. Those are manifestations of what, you know, and we tend to reify the manifestations. And so as we think about the work of the Holy Spirit, I think, first of all, we have to get before us what is the proper essence of things. The move from Babel to Pentecost, and of course what's going to happen from Pentecost, uh, is that 
all nations are represented on the day of Pentecost, and, and that, that's the verse in Acts. And the idea is that from there, Christianity spreads to all nations. But the initial sign of the gift of the Spirit contains in seed form, then, the power of the Spirit to break down barriers and draw together those which are separate. So the languages, you know, the Parthians, Medes, uh, the peoples, they're all Hebrew. Uh, and uh, the, the Hebrew people that are becoming Christians on this day, some 5,000, we know that they spread out from there uh, to, to the various nations. And so the Jew-Gentile divide is maybe a good place to get at the false understanding of what constitutes a people. Are the Jews represented on the day of Pentecost, are they true Parthians and Medes? Uh, it says there were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Are these Jews true representatives of these nations? Or are they, in fact, a foreign element within these nations? Now, before you answer, think here of the Jewish problem in Germany. The Germans presumed that they needed to extract the Jews as a foreign element among them. Can a Jew be a German? Uh, can a Jew be a Parthian? Can a Jew be a Mede? Well, of course they can. But our tendency, the idolatrous evil answer that you would get to this, is to suggest that Germanness or Parthianness or Medeness is in some way an essence unto itself. And the Jewish allegiance to something beyond, you know, Arianism or Parthianism, for many people disqualified the Jews. What's the problem? Who's correct? Are the Germans correct? You know, well, obviously not, because what the Germans have done in, you know, the 20th century is what people have always tended to do, and that is to, in some way, make ethnic, national, racial, religious identity and essence. But is being German, Jewish, you know, or Japanese, Parthian, Mede, is that an identity unto itself? And the Jewish and then the Christian presence among these peoples is not foreign to what it means to be German or Japanese or Parthian. But the Holy Spirit, by crossing the language barrier, has already penetrated the cultural barrier. And the false essence of ethnic, tribal, or racial identity is exposed. So, the, the, we could do the same thing with religion, by the way. Is religion an essence? It, or uh, any more than culture? Is religion something separate from culture that is an essence unto itself? Does it have an essence that floats free from socio-economic cultural factors? Or is religion constituted as part of these factors?
What do you think? In other words, think here. We're saying the Holy Spirit is going to cross these boundaries. It's going to cross socio-cultural religious boundaries. What has happened in the Western study of religion would make of religion something that is an essence, something that is sui generis, which is thought to be constitutive of people. So like culture or... Uh, but what is religion and how is it constituted? Uh, the, you know, Mercia, how do you say his name? Mercia Iliad, how do you say the name, Joy? Mercia Iliad. Apparently. Has said that religion is sui generis and that we experience this essence, you know, in Rudolf Otto said the same thing about Christianity, that we experience the noumena, we experience the holy. Uh, and religion then is just a kind of uh, taking account of this experience. And so religion is defined as humans seeking and responding to what is experienced as holy. Here is Iliad's, uh, it is a set of beliefs, practices, and social structures, structures grounded in a people's experience of what they regard as ultimately real and that accommodate their emotional, intellectual, and social needs. So you have this reality, they experience this reality, and then their religious manifestation or their social is... Is that true? Have I just described something to you that's true or not? Yes, it's true. It's the ground of being. No, it's not true. So, <laughs> uh, what I would say is that uh, religion is not ahistorical. It's uh, not beyond, you know, the, another way of getting at the same thing. Uh, do religions evolve? Now, you're, you're, uh, Trent, you're prepared to answer this because you've been looking. You know, our, our, our prejudice with this is to tend to think, oh, as good Christians, we want to say no that religion is in some way a, an experience of the noumenal, of the, the, uh, an essence. Um, but I would suggest that, no, actually, religions are, think of your own religion. Think of Christianity. Is Christianity ahistorical? Or, in fact, is the idea that we know the reality of God in and through the incarnation of Christ. So that even Christianity, and most especially Christianity, in other words, I think what is happening in uh, the study of world religions is that they're accepting their, the picture of those religions' definition of themselves. But I think what we need to do is recognize, know that what we're saying as Christians is that even our understanding of who God is it, uh, is necessarily historical in Christ. So, is religion, the next question, is religion free of social, economic, and political uh, interference? Well, once you, once you say that uh, religion is historical, 
I would suggest there's no such thing as a religion that is not connected. I mean, this is what religions want to say about themselves is they're not socio-economic and political. Now, all this is going to relate to the work of the Holy Spirit and the practices that we institute as Christians because what we often, we often get this idea of the Holy Spirit as kind of a disconnected entity from practices. And the part of the reason we have that understanding is we have this understanding of Christianity and religion per se as this disconnected entity that is not political, social, cultural. And I just think that's the category mistake. So that once we get it, that, oh no, that Christianity involves us then in the socio-economic, political, that these realms then are precisely what is addressed in the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the values that we hold uh, that are grounded in reality uh, are not free from historical factors. So can any religion be extracted? And then you could go through, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism. You know, I think our immediate thought is, oh, those Buddhists, you know, they're ascetics. They're out. Well, that's, a, that's just a kind of misunderstanding. Think of Buddhism, Hinduism, and the caste system, and the economics, and that's involved in all of that. So, but the point here is that this sui generis reading of religion is related to a sui generis notion of Christianity that the church somehow exists apart from society and culture. No, it's precisely as a socio-cultural entity that we are bound together in the koinonia fellowship brought about by the Holy Spirit. And we need to recognize then the work of the Holy Spirit is to break down the false barriers that separate us. So what begins on the day of Pentecost, and it proceeds, you know, there's the Greeks who are, they're Jews, and there's the Greek speaking and Hebrew speaking, but all of these languages. But if you follow it in the book of Acts, you know, it, it's almost then the next person they will meet is a, a crippled man outside of the temple and Peter heals him. He would have been an outcast. Then they meet, you know, then the Ethiopian eunuch and then, you know, that what is happening in the book of Acts is that Jew, Gentile, you know, women uh, come up very quickly, the Jewish, the Hebrew uh, non-speaking Hebrew widows felt they were being neglected. Um, so Acts is demonstrating how the Holy Spirit overcomes the barriers which separates us. If we don't get an understanding of the nature of these barriers and how the Holy Spirit is working, we may miss the work of... Is maleness an essence? Is femaleness an essence? Uh does it constitute an identity unto itself? It's always this question. I'm just we're just saying the same thing again and again. Is Japaneseness in essence? Is Germanness in essence? What people want to say, what they want to do is find some essence that they can identify with, and that then becomes uh, the barrier. I mean, think of those essences. What's definitive of Japaneseness? 
Well, it's Gaijinness. What's definitive of Jewishness? It's Gentileness. That is, it's a, a binary. So the lepers, the cripples outside of the temple, uh, it's necessary to have the excluded people in order to have the included essence. So the cultures and religions of the world constitute themselves an essence. And the surprising answer of the Spirit now is not that the church is without culture or that the church bypasses these socio-cultural religious distinctions. The point is that in the church these relative distinctions are made relative. That is, they're not obliterated, they're not negated, but they're brought up into a unity. The way that John Milbank has put it. He says the logic of Christianity involves the claim that the interruption of history by Christ and his bride, the church, is the most fundamental of events interpreting all other events. It's not to negate cultures, it's not even to negate religions in their entirety, but the idea is that Christ becomes the interpretive frame and the Holy Spirit then is the outworking of, of this in a, in a real world way, the interruption of one power with the counter power, the reality of the Holy Spirit. So it's not a denial of culture, but it is its completion. And the way that, you know, we've put this before, this is, uh, this is not Niebuhr, but this is uh, a series of people like Hauerwas and others have said that the church or Christ is a culture. Um, the way that Rodney Clapp puts it, the original Christians, in short, were about creating and sustaining a unique culture, a way of life that would shape character in the image of their God. And they were determined to be a culture, a quite public and political culture, even if it killed them and their children. So, it's an interruption in history that is itself historical. Society, it is a part of in the context of society and culture. If it were not cultural, it would not be public. If it were not public, it would just be private. If it's just private, you can just do it in your head. Um, and so the way that McClendon has put it, the gospel story does not simply cancel every other story. Rather, it affirms them where they are true, it corrects them where they are harmfully wrong, and it completes them by showing the relation between these stories and an, all, and, and an inclusive story of all the earth. So every culture and religion contains its own point of failure, its own contradiction, uh, and the point of the Christian is not to in some way say that the culture is a failure, but it is to step in the nat natural gap. You probably heard this, have I told you the story of Bruchko? Bru it's actually Bruce Olson is his name, but the, this native tribe, I think they're in South America, they couldn't say Bruce Olson, they called it, they just called him Bruchko. And he, these people were a kind of a murderous, you know, very violent, and they kept, uh, they, they themselves knew something was wrong, but 
they said that when the person with the talking banana leaves comes, that the uh, that the resolution would be brought that peace would come. And of course, nobody you know knew what that was till Bruce Olson went out one day and saw them cut a banana stalk, and the top of the stalk looked like a little book. And so he used that. He said, "Well, here I have the." Now that's a that's a almost too simplistic of a story because the gap, the failure that they themselves recognized, was the means of entry uh, for Christianity. But that simple story in that case, I think, duplicates it. That inasmuch as we think that a culture is an essence, a religion is an essence in and of itself. I think there is always a kind of contradictory gap within it. Every culture and religion contains its own point of failure. And there is a clear biblical exposition. You know, we can get at this uh, through uh, an understanding of how culture functions in relationship to Christ. Um, so the failure of any particular culture or religion is not one that Christians are removed from. Rather, our own redemption causes us to recognize, oh, well, we were part of a failed identity. You know, was it, did nationalism work out for you? Did being a Texan, was that sufficient? Uh, okay, well, that's, you know, of course that's an exception. But. So, to state it in... Uh, we can say that the Holy Spirit enables us to go on in the way of Christ. And so we can think of this in a very small way, that we can walk as Christ walked in our personal life, but also in a, the, the frame of recognizing then uh, that religion is primarily, uh, you know, that we're, we're crossing all kinds of barriers. But to do this, we need to recognize what is true, a true essence, and what, you know, what is not true. We need to be able to name the idols. Um, let me ask you another question. Is religion primarily a belief system or a set of practices? That's, that's the way to go. Just challenge the question. Uh, do you know what someone believes separate from their practices? Or, in fact, do we understand what someone believes in and through what they do, what they practice? And that gets at the, the nature, the false nature of the question. You probably heard me tell the story. And I always, it's not, I always say the wrong, I think it was Niels Bohr uh, that had a horseshoe up, you know, he was a rocket scientist. And somebody come in and say, oh, Dr. Bohr, I'm surprised that, you know, you, a man of science, believe in a lucky horseshoe. He said, oh, no, I don't believe in that at all. But as I understand it, it works even if you don't believe it. Uh, that's the way that many people, in other words, that's the normal way that religion functions for people. Do religions require that you believe them? Not in the way that Christianity, in other words, Christianity is attempting to bring together faith and practice. 
most religions don't really, in other words, faith is not necessarily connected, but what the religion requires is practice, that you practice it. Well, then the next question is, yes, but can you practice a religion and not believe it? Well, in some sense, I guess we could separate those two things, but the reality is if you practice the religion, uh, that you've adhered to the worldview that that religion would, is, is instituting. So if you go through the various, you know, did the Romans believe in their religions? We know, actually, most Romans didn't in any, but did they kneel their, did they kneel, you know, to Caesar? Oh, absolutely. So did they believe their religion? Well, they were coerced, in a sense, to adhering to an understanding. So the idea here is that when the Holy Spirit is crossing barriers, we need to understand that there is the sense that we may imagine that there is an essence when there is no essence there. So what I've, you know, is religion, let's think here, go back to our understanding. Are there a plurality of roads to God? You know, that all spokes, you know, it's like a, there are many mountains and they all lead to the top. Or there are many spokes and they all lead to the middle. So is, do we believe in a religious pluralism? Do we believe in a kind of inclusivism in which we can talk about anonymous Christians? There are people who don't know they're Christians. Or are we exclusivists and we say, well, no, that only... Well, the point is that each of those, in a way, is missing what I've just described, and that is a practical understanding of the nature of religion. As Christians, what we're calling people to is this koinonia fellowship, this alternative set of practices marked by the fruits of the Spirit. And of course, we, and we're, in talking about this, talking about what is the essence of things, what is your essence? Uh, does your essence reside within you? Or is it outside of you in your practices and relations to others? Is there a deep grammar, a word, that defines you, or is your essence beyond language? How are you constituted? So, ultimately, if we go with the sui generis notion you know, of religion, or even the sui generis notion of self, uh, we'll imagine that we are constituted in some way outside of the koinonia fellowship. What the picture is, know that we're given new birth through the Holy Spirit, drawn together in a fellowship, and this reconstitutes us as, as an individual. So the picture at Pentecost is that we're constituted in a word, uh, in a deep grammar. You know, this is not a word that uh, is bound by a particular language, a particular culture, a particular religion, but it by its very nature, in a Chomskyan sense, is the deep grammar in which every culture, religion, and language plugs in. Uh, the image of the Word of Christ is that here, the deep grammar that undergirds all people in their essence is available to us. 
So you could think of it in terms of Pentecost, or if you want to think of it in terms of Romans 7, uh, the barrier of the eye is broken down. The law, you know, the eye is undone. That's the false essence, right? That I have been crucified. It's no longer I that live, but Christ. So, the Holy Spirit is the one that embodies, you know, the alternative set of practices um, that culture is, you know, that the Christianity is a is a, a uh, an embodied faith, and what we mean by that is that the cultural practices of the gifts of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit binds us together, uh, and it draws other end. I, I I had to look up the term. Do you know centrifuge, and what's the opposite of centrifuge? I didn't know either, but. Uh, I should have known. I think it's centripetal, right? That a centrifuge separates out. It spins around and separates out. But we can think of the church, the koinonia, as centripetal. That is, it draws, drawing others in. Uh, The way that Jürgen Moltmann has put it, the parousia of the Holy Spirit is nothing other than the beginning of the parousia of Christ. That is why the Holy Spirit is called the pledge or down payment. Uh, that is that the presence of God in the Koinonia Fellowship, you know, if we remember that Psalms, uh, it, the picture is David cries out, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. If you're outside of the presence of God, where are you? You're nowhere, right? If God should turn his face from you, uh, that's the worst thing that can happen. Uh, Psalms 104, When thou hides thy face, they are dismayed. When when thou takest away thy breath, they die and return to dust. Thou sendest forth thy breath, and they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. so God's mission is nothing less, this is Moltman again, than the sending of the Holy Spirit from the Father through the Son into the world, that this world should not perish but live. Uh, the Gospel of John tells us quite simply what it is that is brought into the world from God through Christ. I live and you shall live also. For the Holy Spirit is the source of life. This, you know, and thinking this is the last discourse in the book of John from chapter 14 to chapter 17 when he's talking about sending of the gift of the Spirit. That now there is eternal life, whole life, and of course the way that John is picturing that is participation uh, in the Trinity. So that's my that would be my introduction to the gift of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Start with bat, from Babel to Pentecost and you get the entire sweep from a, you know, thinking a kind of failure of language to draw us together to God's effective presence in the Word. If you want to think of it in terms of the law from circumcision in which the sign is not connected to what it signifies to Christianity or baptism, the Lord's Supper, the presence of the gift of the Holy Spirit, 
in which the sign and the signified, that is the real change of heart, are drawn together. Uh, I mean, the real difference is that in one instance in Babel, in Genesis 3, you have a empty word, you have a lie, and in Christ then you have a full word, you have the truth. Um, the way that Karl Barth has put this is that what is revealed is not something about God, but God himself as spirit. God's word is not something separate from God's identity. Rather, his identity and word are one. Now, I don't know. I, I, I like Bart's formula, but I'm never quite sure if I agree with it. Bart sees God as the subject, object, and predicate of the revelatory act. The revealing God, the event of revelation, and the effective presence of revelation. So, uh, the idea is that we can at least see the working of the Trinity in and through the word and understand uh, God is communion, communication. Van Hooser has written a book on the Trinity uh, with a similar idea. He says, God spoke and there were forms of life. Canonical practices are the means by which God socializes us through the ministry of the Spirit into his own dis divine communicative praxis, into a covenantal way of being, into that distinct being in covenantal relationship with the triune God form of life. That is that we're drawn into a participation uh, in the Trinity. I don't know if you get the feel for this, but this is very un-Western. It's the Western sensibility is not of a participation in the Trinity, uh, but it's all oh, it's all about redemption from sin, and sin then becomes a, a definitive of the economy of the church. What is I think what Bard has hit upon is actually in very similar way, and and Van Hooser gets this he, he, that. Uh, it's very much an Eastern Orthodox understanding that what the work of the Spirit is doing, you know, think of Act or Romans chapter 8, it's bringing us into participation in the Trinity. Uh, now the Greek Orthodox idea here is deification, that God became man, that man might become God. That might sound a little heretical, but what is what the idea there is, not obviously that we become, you know, divine in our essence, but that we participate in the essence of divinity. Uh, the 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 alternative to that is a, a kind of you know what we've got still I think in American evangelicalism and Protestantism. Think here of maybe the foremost evangelical was Carl Henry, and he reduced the words of Scripture to its propositional content. But what we've just described, not to leave out propositional content, but what we have in the Word is the person of Christ, and in and through the Spirit we take up that Word and walk. We become participants. Think here of Bible reading. Do you read the Bible to get some facts and propositions? 
maybe, maybe, but it's not to be left out. Or do you read the Bible because, in fact, that is a way of encountering Christ, that there's the Word, that ultimately our Bible reading, you know, and the facts and the propositions fit into that. Here's the last thing. I'll quote Moltmann. Uh, and this is this is on the difference uh, between... Have I talked about the difference between Logos and Dabar? Logos is the, the Greeks, the idea there, of course, the, the, it's the Greek word and the Hebrew word for word. And the issue is, do we, you know, do we get the Greek word logos, should we think in terms of Greek philosophical understanding to understand the New Testament word? Or should we, in fact, think more of a Hebrew understanding and load that into the Greek understanding? And what I would say is, well, no, actually what's happening in the New Testament in John is this, and think here, I'm still thinking Pentecost. What's happening on the day of Pentecost is on the order of creation. There, Here is, once again, a mighty speech act of God in which people are reconstituted. Here's the beginning of recreation. So for the Greeks, words get their meaning in part uh, uh, or in being part of an immutable and impersonal mode of discourse related to some ultimate principle. For the Hebrews, words get their meaning in being expressions of the personal. And so God has given us, we share in who God is in the revelation that we have in the word. I'm saying all this, I, I probably should have started here, that we traditionally connect the work of the Holy Spirit with the Word. Now, if you've misdefined the Word, that doesn't make sense. That is, if you've limited the Word to the words on the page of Scripture, uh, then that's going to be a kind of delimiting factor. But if we understand the Word is Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the one you know, in which... Christ as word is mediated to us it becomes the indwelling Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit the way that Moltmann puts it is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with us corresponds to his eternal divine fellowship it does not merely correspond to it it is that very fellowship itself so in the fellowship of the Spirit we are linked with the triune God not externally but inwardly. Uh, I don't need to do this next section, but I'll mention it. Uh, do you know who Carl Rahner is? And Rahner's rule? So the economic trinity is the imminent trinity. We don't have to we don't have to mess with all of that if we've avoided the whole whole in other words, what's happened in Western theology is there's been this disconnect between the economy of the Trinity and the economy of redemption. But what I've just described to you is the economy of redemption is the economy of the Trinity. We don't need to talk about the economic Trinity is the imminent Trinity if we've not fallen into the error of in some way introducing a division within God. I think the work of the Holy Spirit then 
gets at that idea. No, the indwelling of the Spirit, the participation in the Trinity, we are participants in the essence of who God is. It's not a secondary thing. All right, any comments, questions about the Holy Spirit? (laughs) I did it in one lecture. Uh, Why is there so much division in the church? Um... I think that part of it goes, in other words, that you could ask a, a different question with the, the, the same meaning. Why is there division? Why is there alienation? Why is there violence? Why are, why are people set against one another? And, of course, that's invaded the church. And, and the simplistic answer that's not really that simplistic is sin that we are attached to alienating structures as I've just described them. That if we imagine that essence is to be found in our nationalisms, right? That's a that's a division in the church. You know, if you're if you're a, a not white middle class, you we don't, you know, that's a division in the church if you're not American. So I think we could just go through and talk about the divisions like I've just described the divisions or the, the barriers in religion and culture and identity. That what we tend to do is take the Christianity and just make it one more idolatry.